Well, glad you're here this morning. Uh, one thing that I'm really disappointed in is Luke didn't put up his slide. Where's the slide? Was it supposed to be up there? Oh, dang. So Luke, my fault, that Luke had this slide that was beautiful to talk about giving away free chairs because we have all these chairs that we need to get rid of. There's some padded brown ones that we used to use here and then we bought new ones and then there's some metal folding chairs. We really do want to give them to you. If you want some chairs, just some extra chairs to have for when you have people over, hopefully you have church over and that kind of thing, small groups. Man, we'd love for you to have some. Um, we got to get the storage unit cleared out by January or July 27th. Otherwise, we get charged again. And so they, we got to get rid of them. So um, anyway, so if you're interested, but the slide he had was perfect because it was Bobby Knight on one side throwing a chair, right? You need a chair. And then, and then Oprah was saying, you need a chair. Everybody gets a chair on the other side of the slide. It was beautiful. And I'm, man, I'm disappointed. I'm sorry, Luke. My apologies. I accused you. And it was me. It was me. I am the man, which we talked about last week with David. Okay. Diving into our series. We are still in our series in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. Those two books, we've talked about this, they mirror one another. Not everything in the books are identical, but it's kind of like the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the New Testament. They tell some of the same stories, but they also tell different stories. That's exactly the same with 1 Chronicles, 2 Samuel. They're mirrors of each other. So are Kings and 2 Chronicles, which we'll do later at some point. But these two books mirror one another, and we've been working through the timeline. So like, for example, last week we were in 1 Chronicles, and this week we'll be more in 2 Samuel, because the story in uh, 1 Chronicles came before this story we're going to tell, and back and forth. Does that make sense? And so we find ourselves in 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles. Now here's something I need to tell you. When you're bouncing back and forth, it's easy to get confused, right, and to miss the timeline. And, and it, I did that, and so I want you, I gotta, I've got to like print a retraction here, Okay. Where the retraction is, number one, a few weeks ago, I mentioned that Solomon's sons split the kingdom. It wasn't Solomon's sons. David's sons split and fought over the kingdom. Solomon's son and then his general are the ones that finally split the kingdom into the northern and southern parts of the nation later. Okay, so that's later on. The other thing I said last week was the fact that God used... The, the sin of David, David and Bathsheba, that was part of the lineage of Christ in Matthew and Mark's genealogies that they give of where Christ came from to prove that he was the son of David, to prove that the fulfilled covenant through David happened through Jesus. That's partly true. Um, one of the Gospels explains that it's Mary's genealogy, and that goes with Nathan, David's son. The other genealogy talks about Solomon, and that's Joseph's genealogy, because Jesus was the adopted son of Joseph. And so just to make that clear, I wanted to clarify that, because you might have thought, well, they both came from Solomon, and then you'll read the genealogy, and you'll be like, wait, this is one son, this is another son. It's like, yeah, God used multiple people to bring his son into the world. That's how awesome he is. That's how much he involves us in the process and plan of creation. So to miss that detail is kind of big. And so I just wanted to be sure you guys uh, got that and that I kind of clarified that. So diving into the passage, we're in 2 Samuel 13. You can go onto our website. You can click on the live page. All the scriptures will be there for you if you need them. Um, remember what has just happened. What's just happened in the nation, okay? Oh, sorry. The title today is Why So Miserable? Why So Miserable? Okay? And again, the title of our series, What Happened, Tell Me. That's what we want to know. We can't get a straight answer from anybody in our culture today, can we? What happened? Tell me. And you get five different people who saw what happened and they have totally different interpretations. And you're like, that's not helpful. 
I have no idea what happened, and everybody's telling me something different. And God clearly tells us what happens. He clearly says in his word what he wants and what his desires are, so there's no doubt. The problem is we ignore it. The problem is we don't want to listen to what God has to say, and David was no different. Even though King David was a great king and did some great things for God, he was still a man, he was still incredibly sinful. And we looked at last week one of David's greatest sins. He didn't go out to fight in war. As a result, he slept with Bathsheba. He went up on top of his palace, a palace that he might not have even should, should have had, you know. And so he went on top of the palace, and he went on top because when you're on top of the palace, you can see everybody bathing. It, it was strategic why he didn't go out to war and why he was on top of his building looking down on everyone else, right? He gets Bathsheba there, sins with Bathsheba, kills her husband. It's a disaster. And all of us would say, I don't ever want to have a president or follow a man like that. And yet God asked his people to continue to follow that. See, that's hard. And the reason that's important to know this week is because if you don't understand that, what can happen in your life is you'll become miserable. Because you'll keep going to the next relationship, the next leader, the next person, and they won't fulfill you. You'll find out they lied to you. They can't do everything they said they would do. You know, one of the things Jay and I had a conversation, Jay in our church, I disciple him this week, was the fact that I never told my children, I'll always be there for you, because that is a lie. I cannot be there always for my children. I can't. I can be in one place at one time. And sometimes God may have me be somewhere apart from them, and I can't get to them. I can't be there for them. And if I tell them I'll always be there, and then I'm not, then they're going to look at me and go, why weren't you there for me? You lied to me. So I tell them, Jesus will always be there for you. God will always be there for you. I'll do my best to be there for you, but he's the only one that can be omnipresent in all places. And so I just want you to know that up front, and that he may actually ask me to do things, and it means you have to suffer. I don't get to come to your game because I have to go here. I don't get to do this because I have to do this. I'm submitted to him. I'm not submitted to, to you. Now, God wants me to love my children. He wants me to pour my life out. We're going to see today why the nation is so miserable, why David is so miserable, why his sons are so miserable. The sin that David does and the sins that he commits that he doesn't turn from, he doesn't repent from, keep catching up with him. And can I just tell you, it's the same in our life. That when we look around and see the misery of our world and people go, if there's, if there's a God, why is there so much evil? The reason? Because God is actually merciful and patient. Because if he really wanted to judge sin and take care of it, we're all done. Because you're just as sinful as I am. And God doesn't grade on a curve. He's not like, well, murder's the really bad sin, but if you hurt someone almost to the point of killing them, well, that's not as bad. But that's not God. God lays it out clear, and, it's, and we're going to look at that this morning. And so you have to ask yourself, and you have to ask about the world around you, why is there so much misery? And can I tell you, the Bible is one of the only books that answers that question in a way that makes sense. Islam answers the question of why so miserable as because people won't submit to, to Allah and submit to the people that are his. That's why they're so miserable. Allah, there's no word for love in Islam. Did you know that? There's no word in the Quran for love. Allah does not love. He tells you, get in line, submit. And if you don't, you're dead and I can send my people to kill you. Simple as that. There's, there's no love, there's no compassion, there's no relationship. It's you submit. And if you submit enough, you'll get to a different level of heaven than everybody else. 
And every other religion gives that work harder, do more, and measure up, measure up, measure up. Christianity is the only one that says you can never measure up. doesn't matter how many good things you can do. It will never outweigh the bad. It doesn't matter how great a king David is. He can never get over the fact, and the people can never get over the fact that he committed adultery and murdered someone. It's a reality that happened. And either the people can extend grace to him and forgiveness if he responds to that, or we're just going to be in misery. And the reason we're so miserable is because we won't deal with sin. We won't deal with our own, and we won't deal with the sin of our world, and we definitely won't allow sin to affect us if it was somebody else's fault. Even though the Savior of the world, Jesus, took on all of our sin when it wasn't his fault. And he asks us to be his people. You see, let's dive in. It says, some time had passed. So David commits adultery. It's a mess. We looked at that last week. God forgives him. He repents. Solomon is born. Some time had passed. This is a long time, actually. At this point in the story, David is in his 60s now. That's how much time has passed. He's now in his probably mid-60s, early to mid-60s at this point. And it starts to talk about a problem David had. Remember, David had multiple wives. He had multiple concubines. And he had multiple sons from those wives. And anytime you do that, you're going to create problems. You're going to create wars in your family. Because again, you're spreading yourself out and they're all playing the political game. To get in good with dad. And that's exactly what happens. And God said, I wanted one man to marry one woman for a lifetime. And you say, well then, why did God allow David to marry people? Why does God allow you to do half of what you do? Right? A buddy of mine this week in high school almost got struck by a lightning bolt. He's walking his dogs and it hit his tree and split his tree. He was 30 feet away. A neighbor saw him out there and actually pulled up. We're like, are you okay? He's like, yeah, I was fine. Like, God could take us out in a minute if he wanted to. It's amazing he doesn't. Not prideful like I'm so good that he should like elevate me. Oh no, it's a miracle I'm not dead. He says, some time had passed. David's son Absalom had a beautiful sister named Tamar. So David has been parenting for a while. He's been king for a while after his sin. He's... And David's son Amnon was infatuated with Tamar. Amnon was frustrated to the point of making himself sick over his sister Tamar because she was a virgin, but it seemed impossible to do anything to her. This is the number one issue in our culture today. If I can just find the right person, my life will be better. You know what the problem is with you finding the right person? You keep taking you with you into every relationship. And you're part of the problem. And until you deal with you and deal with you and God in that relationship and you own you, you're just going to keep messing people up. And if you go into a relationship thinking, I've dealt with me, I'm so good, I'm so awesome, the other person's probably going to let you know that's not true. At which point, you're going to have a problem with them. And so this is no different. We live in a culture full of lust, full of I want what I want. She's beautiful, I want her. You can't tell me I can't. I want to define my identity however I want, and I'm not going to let God give, say boo about it. He doesn't get a say over who I am and what I do. That's our culture. It's no different than cultures in the past. We think we're different. We're not. And so Amnon is infatuated, infatuated. Amnon is also the oldest son of David. So he is the heir apparent to the throne. He is the first son. He's the one that's supposed to take over. This is the one that's supposed to be being groomed to take over the kingdom. 
And it looks like there's been a failure in parenting, and we'll see that in a moment. 2 Samuel 13, Amnon had a friend named Jonadab, a son of David's brother Shemiah. Jonadab was a very shrewd man, and he asked Amnon, why are you, the king's son, so miserable? Great question. Why are Americans so miserable? We live, honestly, in one of the most amazing cultures ever in the history of the world. We have problems. Amen? Big problems. Try living in a third world country for a while and see if you don't want to come back to the States. When you can't get medical care for your child because there isn't any. There's no doctors. There's no medicine. The government controls the medicine, and so they get to decide whether you get medicated or not. They steal the medicine when we fly it into countries and distribute it to the military to be safe way before people get it. We live in an amazing time, and all we can do is gripe and complain that what we don't have, like Amnon. He's a king. He's going to be king. He can have any woman he wants. He can have anything he wants. And the one thing he can't have, he is literally sick over. Man, that is so us so often. And the other thing you've got to see here is David keeps using family. This is Jonadab who Amnon goes to. Like, you see David keep promoting family and not holding them accountable. Joab was the same way. We looked at that a few weeks ago. We'll see Joab again. We have to be very careful when we play favorites and we don't deal with sin. And David maybe didn't deal with what we're going to see because maybe he felt so much guilt over his life that he didn't want to. Who am I to tell them when I'm so sinful, when I've done so much? It goes on, it says he's miserable every morning. So in other words, Amnon's up all night dreaming about Tamar. Ever been there? Ever been there where you're dreaming about that woman, that person I got to have, that, oh, he, she, it's, oh, this is going to fix it. Oh, they're wonderful. I've always said this. I want to see the 10-year sequel to every romance movie. Right? How to lose a guy in 10 days. I want to see the 10-year sequel. And how to lose a husband in 10 years. Like, I want to see that. Right? Well, they're not going to show that. They show that it, it all worked out. And you're like, hold on. They got to live together, raise kids. There's a mess coming. It goes on, it says, won't you tell me, Amnon replied, I am in love with Tamar. He's not in love, he's in lust. He's in lust, he's in eros. Not agape, not I love her unconditionally, I love her and I want to have sex with her. Then it goes on, he says, my brother Absalom's sister. Amnon replied, I'm in love with Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. And then he goes on, Jonadab said to him, this is the worst advice you could, this is stupid. But this is what we do. We go to people that will tell us who we want to go. You know who Amnon could have gone to? King David. He could have gone to Absalom and said, hey, would you give me your daughter in marriage? He could have gone to the elders of the people, which the Old Testament talks about, so that they could counsel him and make the marriage work. He could have skipped marrying a sister and found someone else. All those options are off the table for Amnon. He has to have that one thing. Man, this is an addiction. Full blown. And it says, look, Jonadab said to him, lie down on your bed and pretend you're sick. <laughs> Watch this. When your father comes to see you, say to him, please let my sister Tamar come and give me something to eat. In other words, I don't want something to eat from you, dad. I need Tamar to bring it to me. Let her prepare food in my presence so I can watch and eat from her hand. 
So Amnon laid down and pretended to be sick, and when the king came to see him, Amnon said to him, please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my presence so I can eat from her hand. Cakes and raisin cakes in the Old Testament were considered aphrodisiacs. They they gave you strength. How many warning signs do you see right here? Even if you don't know Amnon's in love with Tamar, my guess is Amnon tried to be where Tamar is. You ever been there? Well, I'll just stop by to see if they're there. I, maybe they'll, I'm not going to say anything to him. I just want to kind of drive by, you know. I saw you drive by. Yeah, I was just on my way to the store and die. We, we try to put, how did no one in the family recognize this? Because I guarantee you it wasn't like, oh, I'm in love with her and I have to stay away from her. That is not what this is. Everybody's turning a a blind eye to family sin. And you'll see this over and over again in this. And so, the king, David, who has his own lust problems, David sent a word to Tamar at the palace, please go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare a meal for him. Then Tamar went to his house while Amnon was lying down. She took dough, kneaded it, made cakes in his presence and baked them. She brought the pan and set it down in front of him, but he refused to eat ungrateful. I'm sick. I need to eat. I need to get well. And he's telling people, give me what I want. Give me what, do one more thing, one more thing, one more thing, one more thing for me. And then it says, and then he said, everyone leave me. And everyone left him. Bring the meal to the bedroom, Amnon told Tamar, so I can eat from your hand. Tamar took the cake she had made and went to her brother Amnon's bedroom. When she brought them to him to eat, he grabbed her and said, come sleep with me, my sister. Don't, my brother, she cried. Don't humiliate me, for such a thing should never be done in Israel. Don't do this horrible thing. Where could I ever go with my disgrace? And you, you would be like one of the immoral men in Israel. Please, speak to the king, for he won't keep, you, keep me from you. Like, I'm sure we can arrange something different than this. But he refused to listen to her. And, became, and because he was so strong, stronger than she was, he raped her. And after this, Amnon hated Tamar with such intensity. And isn't that true? We get what we want, and then we hate what we did. We hate that thing that, like I got the woman I wanted, and now five years later, I hate her. Because it's not what I thought. She deceived me. This is so the picture of humanity. And in this, David sends Tamar. This mess happens. And now, get this, David has to deal with the fact that he sent Tamar to Amnon, his oldest son. Now, the Bible is clear. It talks about how to handle this, but let's read on. It says that he hated, that that the hatred he hated with her was greater than the love he loved her with. Welcome to every failed relationship. The people begin to hate the person more than they love the person. They used to love them, and now it's hate after hate, bitterness after bitterness, and you let it build up, and there's no love left. That's on you just as much as on the other person. Because last time I checked, Jesus has a lot of reasons to hate me and my sin and the stupid things I do, and he keeps loving me. He keeps extending his mercy and grace and calling me to the table and confronting me with my sin. That's a real relationship. Goes on and says, no, she cried. Or he said, get out of here, he said. No, she cried, sending me away is much worse than the great wrong you've already done to me. But he refused to listen to her. 
That's another thing. We don't want to listen to people when we're in the midst of our sin. We don't want to listen to people when we're angry and upset. We, for, no, I'm done. I've done what I want to do. Get out of my presence. Instead, he called to the servant who waited on him. Throw this woman, woman, don't even call out a sister. Throw this woman out and bolt the door behind her. Amnon's servant threw her out and bolted the door behind her. Now Tamar was wearing a long sleeve garment because this is what the king's virgin daughters wore. This servant doesn't step up, step up for Tamar. Could have. Looks like in the, right before this, she screamed and said, don't do this because it's an exclamation point in Hebrew. I don't think she was like, don't do this. You remember that in these days, they didn't have glass and windows. You ever seen a castle cut out? If she's screaming, people can hear. And nobody's doing anything. At this moment, this servant, according to the scriptures, should have taken her to the elders, and there should have been a ruling given, and we'll see in a minute, Amnon should have been killed for the sin he did. But remember what Samuel said. Samuel said, told, the Lord, told the people all the Lord's words who were asking him for a king. Remember, God didn't want them to have a king, but he knew they'd want a king to fix all their problems. He said, there are the, here are the rights of the king who will rule over you. He will. And it gives a list of all the stuff an authority, a ruler can do to you and do to your children. He gives them the whole list and said, do you really want this? Do you really want this covenant with a king? And look, their response is, when that day comes, you'll cry out because of the king you've chosen for yourselves, but the Lord won't answer you on that day. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have Tamar. We must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us, will go out before us, and will fight our battles. This is going to make our life easier. And we keep falling for it every time. Every drug, everything that comes on the internet, every marketing campaign, this is good for you. You deserve it. It's going to change your life. No, it's not. Maybe for a little bit, but it's not going to last. And that's exactly what Samuel warned. He's like, don't get a king. Because if you do that, you've got to deal with stuff like this going on, which is David and Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 13, Tamar puts ashes on her head and tore the long sleeve garment she was wearing. By the way, this is what she was supposed to do biblically according to Deuteronomy. She put her hand on her head and went away crying. Her brother Absalom said to her, has your brother Amnon been with you? How did he know that? How did he so quickly know that the reason she was so miserable, why so many, he doesn't even ask why she's so miserable. He automatically assumes that Amnon raped her. That means he probably knew Amnon and knew his lust, and knew his sins, and now Absalom's got to be ticked off at his dad because you sent my sister, you sent her to Amnon? How? Jumps in and it says, be quiet now, my sister. He is your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. What? Now Absalom doesn't do anything. He doesn't follow Old Testament law and what you're supposed to do. Right? Now, he's going to figure out a plan how to take care of it, not give it over to God to take care of it. It goes on. It says, when King David heard about all these things, he was furious. Absalom didn't say anything to Amnon, either good or bad, because he hated Amnon since he disgraced his sister Tamar. David finds out about it. David does nothing. He doesn't do anything about it. 
So what's the Deuteronomy response? In Deuteronomy 22, written a long time before, this was the law written by God that the rulers of God were supposed to know, the priests, the Levites, the kings were supposed to know the law of God. It says this, if a man marries a woman, has sexual relationships with her, and comes to hate her, and accuses her of shameful conduct, and gives her a bad name, so, so this is just married. If, if this happens, there's supposed to be a court. There's, you're supposed to go before the elders. It says the young woman's father and mother will take the evidence of her virginity and bring it to the city elders at the gate. Tamar's mom didn't do that. David didn't do that. Absalom doesn't do that. Why? Because we're powerful and we can handle it. Then it comes on, it goes. He goes on and he says, then the elders of that city will take that man and punish him. And then it gives all the different punishments. And then later it says, no evidence of the young woman's virginity is found. If that happens, then they will bring the woman to the door of her father's house and the men of her city and will stone her to death. In other words, there's going to be to find out if a woman is falsely accusing or rightly accusing. But first, it's the man who has to be judged. First, it's the man that's got to go through the process. Then it goes on in Deuteronomy. It says, For she has committed an outrage in Israel by being promiscuous in her father's house. You must purge the evil from you. If a man is discovered having sexual relationships or relations with another man's wife, was Tamar Amnon's wife? Nope. Was she another man's wife most likely? Yep, most likely she was going to be some other guy's wife. It goes on to say, both the man who had sex and the woman and the woman must die. You must purge the evil from Israel. Jump down. It says, but if the man encounters an engaged woman in the open country and he seizes and rapes her, only the man who rapes her must die. God has amazing laws in the Old Testament. Amazing ways of discovery. Amazing ways. Most of our legal system is based on Old Testament law. Judeo-Christian Old Testament law. And people don't understand that. You can disagree or agree with it. You can go see what Sharia law is like in another country or what law is like in Buddhism, in, in, in Hinduism, and you can look at the caste system and how they decide laws. You can decide all that you want. But this is amazing if you think about it. In this day and age, no other culture held men accountable. Men could literally go kill another tribe, take all the women, rape them, and do whatever they want. There was no accountability. There was nothing. God's saying, oh, no, you're going to be accountable. And in this situation, everyone ignores Deuteronomy 22. This is a pattern in Israel at this point. They're just ignoring the law because, well, we got a king, and the king will tell us what to do. And a lot of people in churches do this, right? Well, my pastor said, my pastor said, my pastor said. Great. What's the Bible say? What did God say? I just told you I was wrong twice, and I corrected myself in front of you. I can be wrong. Both of those corrections came from two men in my church who said, hey, you misspoke, I think. And I went, oh, you're right. I think I did say that. And even if I didn't, I'm, I, yeah, I need, to, I need to clarify that. That's how it's supposed to work. That's not how it works here. Watch this. Two years later. For two years, no one has dealt with this. Two years, Tamar raped. She can no longer in that culture be married almost because who wants a raped woman, right? I want a virgin. I want a pure woman. This is a mess and no one's done anything for two years. Oh, but Absalom's sheep herders were at Belhazar near Ephraim and Absalom invited all the king's sons. Absalom's saying, hey, let's all gather together. Maybe let's bury the hatchet. I don't know. 
Then he went to the king and said, your servant has just hired sheep shears. Will the king and his servants please come with your servant? The king replied to Absalom, no, my son, we should not all go or we would be a burden to you. So let me get this straight. I've invited you to my house for a party, but you don't want to come because you, you think I'm a burden. Like you could bring some food with you. You could say, can I bring something? Can I help with the burden? <laughs> Instead of, oh, we'll just be a burden. We're not coming. No, you probably have other motives why you don't want to come. That's just an easy excuse. Same thing here. David doesn't want to have to deal with Absalom. He doesn't want to have to deal with the mess in his family. He doesn't want to have to deal with what's going on. There's a lot of avoidance going on here. And this, is, I think, is a test that Absalom is giving to his father and to his son, to his other brothers. And it goes on. It says, the king replied this, although Absalom urged him, David wasn't willing to go, though he did bless him. Dad, we've been distant. Our family's a mess. I just want to have everybody over. Would you come? Because I know if you come, then the brothers would. Can we just come together? Nah, I'm too busy. I got important stuff to do, like sitting on top of my house watching women bathe. This is what we do in church. I'm too busy for God. I'm too busy to give myself to God's people. I'm too busy to to be with the body of Christ, the family of God. I got stuff to do. But, but, but blessings on you. I hope God goes well with you. I hope everything's fine. If not, Absalom said, please let my brother Amnon go with us. Finally, Absalom's like, fine. If you won't come together, if we won't come together, then send me Amnon. Now Absalom commanded his young man, oh, by the way, David does send Amnon. <laughs> David's like, go, go to your brother. After two years, and they haven't dealt with anything, it says, Now Absalom commanded his young men, Watch Amnon until he is in good mood for, from the wine. When I order you to strike Amnon, then kill him. Don't be afraid. I am not the one who has com commanded you. Be strong. Am I not the one who commanded you? Be strong and courageous. So Absalom's young men did to Amnon just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the rest of the king's sons got up and each fled on his mule. While they were on the way, a report reached David. Absalom struck down all the king's sons. Not even one of them survived. Welcome to Facebook. Welcome to Twitter. Sensationalism. Oh, it's coming to an end. Everybody's dead. Oh, it's awful. It's never happened before. It's unprecedented. No, he just killed Amnon. He, he's not in, like, And actually... He did what should have been done according to Deuteronomy 22. The only problem is he didn't do it the right way. But he's not actually out of bounds committing this murder. That's kind of weird, but I mean, he is out of bounds because he didn't go through the process. Like, you're supposed to go through the legal process. You just can't be your own judge and jury. Same thing here. In response, the king stood up, tore his clothes, that's David, lay down on the ground, and the servants stood by with their clothes torn. They've all got torn clothes. They're crying out to God. Look who shows up. But Jonadab, son of David's brother Shimni, spoke up. My Lord must not think they've killed all the young men, the king's sons, because only Amnon is dead. How did he know? Who's he buddies with? Absalom. David doesn't even question, how do you know that? Weren't you the one that told him to do this to Tamar? Oh, no, that's our little secret. We don't talk about the secrets we have. We, we keep those buried. 
so that I can manipulate and get what I want. And so Jonadab is manipulating. David is constantly being manipulated by his family, constantly allowing himself to be manipulated, constantly not going to the truth, but constantly trying to do what he thinks is right. Absalom had planned this ever since the day Amnon disgraced his sister Tamar. Again, he lets him know, I I knew this. So now, my lord the king, don't take seriously the report that says that all the king's sons are dead. Only Amnon is dead. Only Amnon. See, David sent Tamar to be raped. Now he thinks, I've sent all my sons to be killed. Meanwhile, Absalom had fled. When the young men who were standing watched, looked up, there were many people coming from the road west of him from the side of the mountain. Jonadab said to the king, look, the king's sons have come. It's exactly, it's exactly like your servant said. I love that, the pride, right? Like, I told you it was no problem. I... I gave you peace. Like, you didn't warn me he was going to kill my son. Really? Just as he finished speaking, the king's son entered and wept loudly. Then the king and all his servants also wept bitterly. Now Absalom fled and went to Talmali, son of Amidahud, king of Jesser. And David mourned for his son every day. Absalom had fled and gone to Geshur, where he stayed there three years Then King David longed to go to Absalom, for David had finished grieving over Amnon's death. Picture the scene. Absalom Absalom flees. By the way, Absalom doesn't flee to the right place. You know where we get the term sanctuary city from? It's from the Bible. God told the people of God in the Old Testament that you need to have sanctuary cities where people who commit murder or heinous crimes can flee to to get a fair trial. And there were basically five major cities, something seven, five cities that you could flee to that were the sanctuary cities of Israel. You would flee to those cities. You would turn yourself into the elders of the city. You would say, hey, they can kill me because I killed theirs. They can kill me, right? Eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. I'm coming here because I want you to give me a verdict. And then the Bible says they would live in that city and there would be restitution. There would be a whole process. Amnon doesn't flee to a sanctuary city. Why? He doesn't know the Bible. He doesn't trust God's plan. Instead, he flees to more family. He flees to his mom's family in Geshur. This could have started another war. Later it does. Joab, son of Zeriah, observed that the king's mind was on Absalom. For three years, the king's mind has been on this. Why why do you think David's mind has been so consumed with this huge mess? Bathsheba, Tamar, I sent my sons with Amnon. This is all my fault. Here I am in my 60s, coming to the end of my reign and the end of my life. David dies when he's 70. He doesn't have many years left. And he's looking back on his life and he's wondering, and he's miserable. Why so miserable? Because of his sin, because of our sin. So Joab sent some Someone to Tekoa to bring a clever woman from there. He told her, pretend to be in mourning. Dress in mourning clothes and don't put on any oil. Act like a woman who has been mourning for the dead for a long time. Go to the king and speak these words to him. Then Joab told her exactly what to say. When the woman from Tekoa came to the king, she fell with her face to the ground in homage and said, help me, my king. What's the matter, the king asked. He's, he's like, why? Why should I help you? Why so miserable? What's the problem? 
Then she goes into this elaborate story. You can read it yourself. We're not going to read it. She tells this incredible scenario to get David's attention to show him that the justice that she says she wants for herself, that she's made up this story, is actually what he should be thinking about with his sons and for his life. Jump to verse 19. It says, the king asked her after she tells the story, did Joab put you up to all of this? (laughs) The woman answered, as you live, my lord the king, no one can turn to the right or left from all my lord the king says. Yes, your servant Joab is the one who gave orders to me. He told your servant exactly what to say. Joab, your servant, has done this to address the issue indirectly. We loved addressing issues indirectly. God loves addressing issues directly. He doesn't mess around. And we don't like direct confrontation. We like the indirect, right? Don't tell your kids no, just just give them other options. Does God tell kids no? Have you read your Bible? He says no a lot. He also says yes a lot. Goes on, it says, she she looks and she says, um, but the, my Lord has wisdom like the wisdom of the angel of God, knowing everything on earth. And the king said to Joab, I hereby grant this request. Go bring back the young man Absalom, because Joab told her to give this story to say we need to see Absalom and David back. David is miserable. We need to see restoration. I want to see restoration happen. And everybody's trying to play the game of making everybody happy. And let's get all along. You know what no one's still doing? Reading the Bible. No one's still looking at how God says to take care of these situations. No one. It's just, well, I'll play this game. I'll try this. I'll try that. I'll try that. No one's going, hold on. How does God say to deal with it? Let's look at that, right? He goes on. It says, Joab fell with his face to the ground in homage and praised the king. Today, Joab said, your servant knows I have found favor with you, my lord, the king, because the king has granted the request of your servant. Remember, Joab fell out of favor with God and David cursed Joab. Right? He said, your sons are going to be at war because of what you've done. Your family, your household is going to be a wreck because of what you've done. And so now, Joab, all this time, is trying to, been getting, he's trying to get David's favor. Like, I can earn the love of another person. You ever been in a relationship like that where the other person's constantly trying to earn your love? Yeah, it's called stalking. God doesn't try to earn our love. He just is love, and he says, will you respond to me? Here it is. Here I am. I came from heaven to earth to show you who I am as clearly as I could. Now, how will you respond? No other being has done that. No other God says that they would do that. Then he says, so Joab got up, went to Gusher and brought Absalom to Jerusalem. However, the king added, Absalom may return to his house, but he may not see my face. So Absalom returned to his house, but he did not see the king. Why? Well, what good does that do? Why are you still not dealing with this? Why not both, like, I don't want to see him, but let's go before the elders and have them settle the dispute. Let's, let's bring in some counselors. Let's get some counseling. Let's bring in some other people to help us see what our problems are, what their problems are, and let's try to work through this over a lifetime, and let's save the family. Let's change. Let's... No, he can come, but I don't want to see him. goes on, it says, No man in all Israel was as handsome and highly praised as Absalom. For the sole of his foot to the top of his head, he did not have a single flaw. When he shaved his head, he shaved it every year because his hair got so heavy for him that he had to shave it off. He would weigh the hair from his head and it would be five pounds according to the royal standard. 
Who, who weighs their hair? I love that God puts this, like he's so prideful. He's like, I just want to see how much my hair weighs. <laughs> I'm that awesome. Like that's Absalom's heart, right? And it goes on, it says, three sons were born to Absalom and a daughter. What did he name his daughter? Tamar, he hasn't forgotten. He's still ticked off. He names his daughter Tamar because by golly, I'm going to have a daughter that reminds me every day of what happened and what my father did. He goes on, who was a beautiful woman. Absalom resided in Jerusalem two years but never saw the king. So two years, four years, two years. The David and Absalom have basically no relationship. David is not a good father. He's not. It goes on, it says this, then Absalom sent for Joab in order to send him to the king, but Joab was unwilling to come. So he sent, a, sent him again a second time, but he still wouldn't come. Then Absalom said to his servants, see Joab has a field right next to mine, and he has barley there. Go set it on fire. What? How prideful and arrogant. Like, you, like I've exhausted all my resources. Let's just burn, see what happens and set a forest fire off. Like, no. Did you really try everything? No, no this will get his attention. And that's exactly what happens. Then Joab came to Absalom's house and demanded, why did your servant set my field on fire? Again, look, Absalom explained to Joab, I sent for you and you said, and, and said, come here, I want to send you to the king to ask, why have I come back from Jesser? I'd, be, I'd be better off if I were still there. I'd be better off if you weren't in my life and near me. Can I tell you that happens in households all the time? I'd be better off if you weren't even in this house. I'd be better off if I didn't have you. Do you know how painful that is to someone to hear? Especially someone like David who knows he's a horrible sinner. He knows what he's done. He's wrestling with it. He, he's wrestling with the fact that what do I do with this mess that I've made? And it just keeps getting poured out on him how awful he is. It goes on. It says... Joab, oh, and then he goes on, it says, I'd be better off. Now look at what Absalom does. Absalom does, I'm so sick of this, I want justice. So now let me see the king, and if I'm guilty, let him kill me. In other words, I'm done playing this indirect game. I want a direct meeting with the king. If he wants to kill me, if my sin is worthy of death, then I'll take it on. I'll take the consequences. I'll take the burden. Joab went to the king and told him, so David summoned Absalom, who came to the king and bowed down with his face to the ground before him. Then the king kissed Absalom. Can you picture the scene? Six years, actually eight years, that Absalom's barely been in his, he hasn't been in his dad's presence and his dad sees him and he just, David just breaks. And he, and he hugs him and he kisses him. You know, this sounds like the story of the prodigal son, right? The only problem is Absalom doesn't respond well to this. Absalom doesn't know how to respond well to the love and the grace that his father showed him when he deserved to kill him. We're the same way with Jesus. That Jesus wants to embrace us and kiss us, and so often we'll go right back out, and the next day when something doesn't happen the way we want it to happen, or when we think it should go this way, or we come to God and we're yelling at him, and he shows us mercy and grace, we just get more angry. That's exactly what happens with Absalom. After this, Absalom got himself a chariot, horses, 
and 50 men to run before him. He would get up early and stand beside the road leading to the city gates. Whenever everyone had a grievance to bring before the king for settlement, Absalom called out to him and asked, what city are you from? If the person replied, your servant is from one of the tribes of Israel, Absalom said to him, look, your claims are good and right, but the king does not have anyone to listen to you. He added, if only someone would appoint me judge in the land. My father thinks it's okay that he can just kiss me and it's all good. I don't respond to grace like that. My dad doesn't have time for me. He didn't have time for me for eight years. I'm going to let the people of God know what kind of king they have. A king that abandons them and doesn't spend time with them and then acts like he loves them. Sound familiar with people that talk about Christianity in our day today? And so now Absalom's planning a plot. He tells them, your claims are good. We love to hear that, don't we? Right? Oh, your claims, you can have what you want. Oh, if I was judge, I would give you everything you wanted. I would make Israel great again. Just elect me. Right? Biden, same way. Oh, we're going to change the country. No, you're not. You're just going to be selfish and do what everybody else does. Because you don't know God and you don't care what God has to say. Neither of them. Do you care what God says about judge? Do you care what God says about people? Like, do you? Because I haven't heard any of them. I saw one guy raise a Bible in front of a church. I don't know if he's ever read it. I've seen them both misquote scripture all day long and nobody calls them out. Like, that's not what God says. Goes on and he says, your claims are good. In other words, I would give you everything. Then anyone who had a grievance or dispute could come to me and I would make sure he received justice. Right? Because why? Because my dad doesn't know how to do justice. Well, maybe he doesn't know how to do it with the family, but... He wasn't a bad ruler for all of Israel. Remember, we read earlier that he was doing righteous things. He just struggled to hold his own family accountable and discipline his own family. Guess what? Welcome to America. I really don't care what the principal does to that other kid, but you touch my kid and we're going to have a war on our hands. Because that's my kid. That's my family. Why don't you care about the others? Why don't you ask, was it just what happened to your child? Or just, is that what God would want? Is they're the authority. Did they mishandle? Should, like, what's the process? No, we don't do that. We just get mad and do this kind of stuff. Then he goes on and he says, when a person approached to bow down to him, Absalom reached out his hand, took hold of him, and kissed him. Just like my dad. I could just see like every kiss being like, take that, dad. Take that with your kiss, dad. Take that. Some people act like that with God. They don't understand the pain, the grievance, the, what they've done. They're just so focused on the other person. And then it says, when four more years had passed, <laughs> Absalom said to the king, please let me go to Hebron to, to fulfill a vow I made to the Lord. Go in peace, the king said to him. So he went to Hebron. Then Absalom sent messengers throughout the tribe of Israel with this message. When you hear the sound of the ram's horns, you're to say, Absalom became king become king in Hebron. 200 men from Jerusalem went with Absalom. They had been invited and were going innocently, for they knew nothing about the whole matter. While he was offering the sacrifices, Absalom sent for David's advisor, Ahithophel, the Gileadite, from his city of Giloth. 
So the conspiracy grew strong and the people supporting Absalom continued to increase. Then an informer came to David and reported, the hearts of the men are of Israel with Absalom. David sent all the servants with him in Jerusalem. Get up, we have to flee or we will not escape from Absalom. Leave quickly or he will soon overtake us. Heap disaster on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. The king's servants said to him, whatever the Lord, the king decides, we are your servants. David gives up. He just quits. And this is what we do in relationships. There's a problem and we just quit. Oh, this is awful. I'm done. I quit. I'm running away. It's over. I got to go away. They don't want me anymore. It's all my fault. Or we quit because we can't see it's our fault and we attack. This is no different than our day. And here Absalom is. He's rallied some people. So we get our friends to go after that other person. And we, we build a, a posse around them so that we're righteous, we're right, and we'll get you. David is just humbly beaten. He's broken. He recognizes all he's done. And he's like, I just I quit. I'm just done. This is so sad. And then it goes on. The king set out. And his entire household follow him. But he left behind ten concubines to take care of the palace. So the king set out and all the people followed. They stopped at the last house, 18, verse 18, while all his servants marched past him. Then all the Cherethites, Pelethites, and Gittites, 600 men who came with him from Gath, marched past the king. The king said to the Gittite, why are you also going with us? Don't follow me. Don't, I'm, I'm nothing. I'm worthless. Don't, don't follow me. Go back and stay with the new king since you're both a foreigner and exile from your homeland. It's not going to go well with you if you come with me because I think, I think God's so angry with me for all my sin. I think he's so done with me. He doesn't care about me anymore. You just, you just go back. Besides, you only arrived yesterday. Should I make you wander around with us while I go wherever I can? I don't even know where I'm going. I don't even know what I'm doing. Ever been there? Go back and take your brothers with you. May the Lord show kindness and faithfulness. David still looks at them and says, yeah, I'm miserable, but I pray God shows you kindness and faithfulness. I don't know if he has kindness and faithfulness for me, but I still believe he's a kind and faithful God. That is lunacy. But that's where David is, and it's where we can go so often in our hearts. But in response, Idai vowed to the king, as the Lord lives and my Lord the king lives, wherever my Lord the king is, whether it means life or death, your servant will be there. March on, David replied to Idai. So Idai the Gittite marched past with all his men and the children who were with him. Everyone in the countryside was weeping loudly while all the people were marching past. This is the worst parade you could ever be a part of. And the king was crossing the Kidron Valley. All the people were marching past on the road that leads to the desert. Zadok was also there. And all the Levites with him were carrying the Ark of the Covenant of God. They set the Ark of God down. And Abathar offered sacrifices until the people had finished marching past. Then the king instructed Zadok, return the Ark of God to the city. Watch David, what David says. If I find favor in the Lord's eyes, he will bring back and allow me to see both it and the dwelling place. However, if he should say, I do not delight in you, then here I am. He can do with me whatever he pleases. In other words, David says, I'm not going to use God. I'm not going to use the ark like they had before in the people's past. I'm not doing that. I don't know what God's doing, but I'm miserable. I, need to, I don't know. Just take it back to where it's supposed to be. Do what's right. Don't just back me up because I'm king. Be for God. Then he says, the king said to Zadok the priest, look, return to the city. 
in peace. And your two sons with you, your son Amahaz and Ibithar's son Jonathan. Remember, I'll wait at the fords of the wilderness until the word comes from you to inform me. So Dadak and Ibithar returned the ark of God to Jerusalem and stayed there. David was climbing the slope of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he ascended. His head was covered and he was walking barefoot. This is a king and this is how he looks. This is brokenness. This is humility. This is crying out to God. He's praying and saying, God, I I did this. I didn't want this, but man, I got to cry out to you. Each of the people with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they ascended. You want to know someone else who did this? Jesus. Luke 19. On Palm Sunday, it says, when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. That's going up the Mount of Olives. That's where they were going. As he approached Bethage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, The people started to sing and praise and worship. They laid their coats down and palm branches. And he went into the city and they were saying, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Our king has come. And just like David, Jesus responds, as he approached and saw the city, he wept over it. Saying, if you knew this day, what would bring peace? But now it's hidden from your eyes. If you just knew How God gave you the law. He gave you the Bible. He gave you a relationship. He gave you the covenants. He gave you a picture of who he is because he wants you to have peace with him. And he wants you to feel his peace instead of being so miserable. You live in a world of misery. And guess what? It doesn't matter if you're an atheist, a Buddhist, an Islam. It doesn't matter what religion you are. You still live in a miserable world. It's not going to change. It's been miserable for humans forever. (laughs) We all die. And yet God says, if you only knew what would truly bring you the peace you're looking for. It's not about your family. It's not about playing all the games. Then someone reported to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. Lord, David pleaded, please turn the counsel of Ahithophel um, to fool, into foolishness, David says. When David came to the summit, in other words, he's saying, I hope Ahithophel doesn't give good advice where he used to worship God. Hushai, the archite, was there to meet him with his robe, torn and dust on his head. David said to him, if you go away with me, you'll be a burden to me. But if you return to the city and tell Absalom, I will be your servant, my king. Previously, I was your father's servant, but now I'll be your servant. Then you can counteract Ahithophel's counsel for me. Won't Zadok and Abathar the priest be there with you? Report everything you hear from the king's palace to Zadok and Abathar the priest. Take note, their two sons, Zadok's son Amahaz and Abathar son, son, son Jonathan are there with them. Send me everything you hear through them. So Hushai, David's personal advisor, entered Jerusalem just as Absalom was entering the city. In other words, David's like, I need someone that will tell me the truth. And look at this. David tells them, go to the elders. Don't go to me. Don't go to the king. Now he's telling them to go to the elders of the city, which should have been done 10 years earlier. He goes on. It says, when David had gone a little while beyond the summit, Ziba, Mephibosheth's servant, was right there to meet him. He had a pair of saddled donkeys loaded with 200 loaves of bread, 100 clusters of raisins, 100 bunches of summer fruit, and a skin of wine. Man, that's crazy to be just happening to be traveling with that much stuff. Oh, it's not. He's not happening. Watch what happens. It says, the king said to Ziba, why do you have these? Ziba answered, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride. The bread and summer fruit are for you, the young men to eat. The wine is for those who drink, who become exhausted in the desert. Where's your master's grandson, the king asked. In other words, where's Mephibosheth? You were supposed to be taking care of him. Remember, David rescued Mephibosheth, who was King Jonathan's son. He was of the household of Saul, another kingdom. He's like, where's Mephibosheth? He's crippled. 
Did, did you just leave him? Why, he's staying in Jerusalem. <laughs> Ziba left him and thought, I can go get in good with the king and I don't have to serve this Mephibosheth anymore. Ziba replied to the king, for he said, today the house of Israel will restore my grandfather's kingdom to me. The king said to Ziba, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is now yours. I bow before you, Ziba said, may you look favorably on me, on me, my lord, my king. A man belonging to the household of Saul was just coming out. His name was Shimei, son of Gera, and he was yelling curses as David approached it. He threw some stones at David and all the royal servants and the people and the warriors of David to the right and the left. Shimei said, as he cursed, get out, get out, you worthless murderer. The Lord has paid you back for all the blood of the house of Saul in whom you placed you became king. And the Lord has handed the kingdom over to your son Absalom. Look, you're in trouble because you're a murderer. Then Abishai, son of Zeriah, said to the king, why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Let me go over and cut his head off. The king replied, sons of Zeriah, do we agree on anything? They don't. They constantly, if you remember, they're constantly disagreeing. He curses me this way because the Lord told him, curse David. Therefore, who can say, why did you do that? Then David said to Abishai and all his servants, look, my own son, my own flesh and blood intends to take my life. How much more now these Benjamites, or this Benjamite? Leave him alone and let him curse me. The Lord has told him to. Perhaps the Lord will see my affliction and restore goodness to me instead of Shimei's curses today. So David and his men proceeded along the road as Shimei was going along the ridge of the hill opposite him. As Shimei went, he cursed David and threw stones and dirt at him. Finally, the king and all the people with him arrived exhausted, so they rested there. This is depression at its lowest point. David is done. People, God's sending people to try to encourage him, and the enemy's sending people to discourage him. And it says, Now Absalom and all the Israelites came to Jerusalem. Ahithophel was also with him. When David's friend Hushai the Acherite came to Absalom, Hushai said to Absalom, Live long, the king, live long. Is this your loyalty to your friend, Absalom asked? Why didn't you go with your friend? Not at all, Hushai answered Absalom. I'm on the side of the one the Lord, the people, and the men of Israel have chosen. That's a good answer. That's not a lie. He doesn't know who the people are for yet, totally, right? Eventually, David's restored. And then he says, furthermore, whom I will serve, whom will I serve if not his son? In other words, I'm obeying your father to serve you. And then he says, as I served your father's presence, I will also serve in yours. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, give me your advice. What should we do? He's like, now that I've got the kingdom, I didn't think it was going to be that easy. My father just left and I just walked into Jerusalem. I was expecting a fight. I, and I just, now what do I do? Ahithophel replied to Absalom, sleep with your father's concubines. He left to take care of the palace. When all Israel hears that you've become repulsive to their father, everyone will, with you will be encouraged. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof and slept with his father's concubines in the sight of all of Israel. What a detestable act. Deuteronomy says, a man is not to marry his father's wife. He must not violate his father's marriage bed. That includes concubines. He's to be struck dead if he does it, Deuteronomy says. Now the advice of Ahithophel gave in those days was like someone asking about a word from God. Such was the regard that David and Absalom had for Ahithophel's advice. So all this time that David's been making these decisions that we see, this verse tells us he's been listened to Ahithophel. Ahithophel, the guy that just said, break the Old Testament law. It'll be okay. It'll go well with you. Just don't worry about what God says. We listen to people like that today. 
because they tell us what we want to hear and they, they paint a picture that God is for us. He's for our advantage, right? No, God's for himself and if you know him and he's in you, he's for that. He's for him in you. <laughs> and it's so easy to get with the wrong people and listen to the wrong people and end up in a mess. Deuteronomy 17 says this, this is the advice that was ignored. When you enter the land your Lord God is giving you, take possession of it, live in it, and say, I will set a king over me like all the other nations around me. This is a prophecy. God knew they were going to do this. He wasn't telling them to get a king. He said, I know you're going to ask for this. When that happens, you're to appoint over you the king the Lord your God chooses. They didn't do that with Saul necessarily. They did that with David. However, he must not acquire many horses for himself or send the people back to Egypt to acquire many horses. For the Lord has told you, you're never to go back that way again. He must not acquire many wives for himself so that his heart won't go astray. He must not acquire very large amounts of silver and gold for himself, which David was storing up to build a temple. If a man has a, right? So, so the Bible says in this passage, says this is what a king's not supposed to do. And then, you ready for this? He says the king is to write it down and have these words next to him by his throne to read every single day. And David has been taking wives. David's been taking plunder and silver and gold and chariots and horses. And no one has said boo to him about it. No one has said, uh, Deuteronomy 17. I, we have that. It's in the scrolls. Can, you want me to bring you a copy so you can have it right here beside you? No, because things are going well. David's a good guy. I mean, yeah, he sins, but if he sins, that means he'll go easy on me when I sin. We don't care what God says, and God's people are no different than us. And whenever you don't care what God says, you're going to be miserable. It's going to lead to this mess of a family and misery. And at some point, you've got to be like David and say, I'm done. I'm, I'm finished. Whatever God wants to do, God will do. I'll obey him. I'll do what he says. And man, it's going to cost me, and I know it. But I'm done. I surrender. In Deuteronomy 21, this is how it should have been handled. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father or mother and doesn't listen to him, even after they discipline him, his father and mother must take hold of him and bring him to the elders of the city, to the gates of his hometown. They will say to the elders of the city, this son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He does not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. So that gives specifically that he's gone that far. It's not like my son didn't pick up his laundry, so we need to kill him. That's not what this is. Then all the men of the city will stone him to death. You must purge the evil from you, and all Israel will hear and be afraid. We read that. Most people say, that's why I don't believe the Bible. That's why I can't believe in the God of Bible. Kills children like that. I just can't believe in that. I can't believe that, in a God that would do this kind of stuff. So, so you can't believe in a God who disciplines? Who finally says, when you won't be disciplined, I'm going to lock you up or take you out? We do that in our culture every day. We expect that when someone else's son kills our son. But when my son kills somebody, I want, the, I want to pass. I want mercy for him. See, God says, look, when you have these rebellious people, you've got to deal with it. If you just let it go on for eight years, ten years, it's going to cost the nation. It's going to cost everyone. You have to deal with this. And here's the, you ready for this? Here's the beauty of what God did. 
The beauty of God is it said, I don't want your sons to die, so you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to send my son to die for your sons. I'm going to send my son to die for you in your place. I'm going to take the punishment that you won't even read. I'm going to take the punishment you won't even acknowledge as good, and I'm going to put it on myself to show you that that punishment is righteous and good, and that there is a way of escape, a way of peace, so that you don't have to be miserable. Look at what Proverbs says. It says, the Lord disciplines the one he loves just as a father, the son he delights in. The Lord disciplines us because he knows how we can hurt others and he doesn't want to see that happen. He doesn't want to see Amnons and rape and murder and disaster. And he knows that if, I, if we keep just getting what we want, eventually we'll go all the way. Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but the one who hates corrections is stupid. The one who will not use the rod hates his son, but the one who loves his son, look at this, disciplines him diligently. It doesn't mean we beat our kids. It just means there comes a point when there is a wall of separation you have to deal with. And lastly, in Revelation, the final book, it says this, as many as I love, I rebuke and discipline. This is Jesus speaking. So be committed and repent. I discipline, I punish because I want you to repent. It's not because I don't love you, it's because I love you and I love everyone else and we gotta get on the same page and if we're not, it's gonna be bad. The reason I discipline is so that we can run a household. If there's no discipline and everybody just gets what they want, we're gonna kill each other. And we know that on our little microcosm, but you keep taking that out, it just keeps worse and worse and God's like, that's why I sent my son and he obeyed every law. And you know what you did to him? You killed him for it. As we wrap up, Hebrews says this. Hebrews will be doing this fall. It says, And you have forgotten the exhortation that I address, uh, that addresses you as sons. God addresses us as sons. My son, do not take the Lord's discipline lightly or faint when you are reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and punishes every son he receives. David knew this. That's why he was responding the way, endure suffering as discipline. That's what David did. God is dealing with you as sons. For what son is there that the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, which all receive, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had natural fathers discipline us and we respected them. There should be a discipline and respect. The Bible also says that fathers shouldn't exacerbate their children or, or discipline them badly and meanly. Shouldn't we submit even more to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time based on what seemed good to them, but God does it for our benefits so that we can share in his holiness, so we can be like him. See, Absalom and Abnon turned out like their father in the bad ways instead of the good ways because there was a lack of discipline. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace. He says, no discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the fruit of peace and righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Therefore, this is like speaking to David when he's on the mountain and he's depressed. Therefore, strengthen your tired hands and your weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may, be dis, may not be dislocated but healed instead. God wants to bring healing and he says, pursue peace with everyone and holiness. I love that. He says, you just don't pursue peace to have peace. You need to be sure that God wants you to have the peace he says to have. Be holy. 
Without it, no one will see the Lord. Make sure that no one falls short of the grace of God and that no root of bitterness springs up like the bitterness between Amnon, Absalom, and David, causing trouble and by it defiling many. And make sure that there isn't any immoral or irreverent person like Esau who sold his birthright in exchange for one meal. Esau sold all the blessings of God so he could have that one thing. Don't be like Amnon. I don't care that I have the whole kingdom. I gotta have that woman. God keeps telling us the same things over and over again and we keep ignoring it. And we keep suffering and the misery gets worse and God is looking at it and saying, I'm not telling you the world's gonna get fixed, but I can tell you I can work on your heart. And if I work on your heart, you can begin to work on the hearts of people around you and you can see change in your relationships. You don't have to be miserable. You can find a relationship with God and peace and love. You can find his grace. See, grace is unmerited favor that you don't deserve, that God extends to you. The Bible says that we are saved by grace through faith, not works. And when you read the story of David, everybody's trying to work to get to a point where they can be strong and save themselves. And you look at David and he's like, I can't save myself. I'm done. If God doesn't come through, it's over. And when we come to that place, that's when God steps in. And that's when he begins to take that misery and bring joy. And he begins to heal relationships and heal the pain. And he begins to put the pieces back together. It may not mean that all your relationships work out the way you want. Because guess what? That other person has a choice too. But you don't have to be miserable anymore. You can find him and the joy in him. There's plenty in this story for you to see yourself. I would ask you this question. Where do you see yourself? Because Jesus is in heaven right now looking down and saying, I paid the price for you. And I'm asking you to be someone who will be willing to lay down their life for others instead of like all these trying to take life from people. That you'll trust God, that you'll read his word, you'll know his word, and you'll do what it says. Let me ask you, you, do you have a relationship with the God of the Bible? Or do you have a relationship with the God of the Bible that you decided what Bible to write? Do you truly believe in a God like this that that has given us the full picture of justice and love and mercy and grace and compassion and all that comes with it to say this is reality. I'm not going to give you a fake being. This is the real being. Because if you don't, you're going to be miserable. And it may not happen now. You may be happy for a while. David, hey, for a long time after Bathsheba, it seemed like things were going really great. And then all of a sudden, Amnon. And then Absalom. And it was eight to ten years of misery. We can just kind of put pause and just cruise along. God says, I want you to be with me. I want you to know that if you know me, you are my son and you cannot be separated. You are my child. And if I discipline you, it's not because I want to kill you, which is where David went. It's because I love you. I discipline those I love because I want to pull you in, not push you away like David did Absalom. I want to pull you in. That's the God of our book. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for this message. It's a hard one, but it's true. I thank you that you give us hope that Jesus, when you climbed the mountain of Jerusalem, you you wept over the people and their rebellion. You wept because you knew they were going to reject the offer that you gave. You knew that they were going to turn their back on you instead of turning to you, and it broke your heart. Father, I pray that we would see that that's exactly the same with us. 
The Lord, you are right now looking down from heaven and you're calling us into relationship with you, not to just give a quick kiss and go about your life, but you, you want to know us and you want us to know you. Father, I pray that this morning, if there's anyone here who doesn't have a relationship with you where they've surrendered like David surrendered, I pray today be the day. They would say, you know what? I've been trying to work and get in good with God like Jonadab and Joab and all these guys to try to earn God's favor and I'm still miserable. I pray they'd be like David and just surrender and say, I give myself fully to God, whatever he wants. And then they would get in your word and they'd get in a body of people that would help them to understand who you are fully. And for those of us who are believers, Lord, I pray that when we see this story and we see what's going on, that we'd see that David is restored, Absalom is defeated. And it's sad and it's tragic, but that, that you look out for us, that you love us, that you want us, as Hebrew says, to be strengthened in our bones, to fix what's dislocated and broken in our lives so that we don't have the misery. And it's a battle. It doesn't go away. There's emotions that go back and forth. But if we don't know your word, if we don't dig in, then we're going to have advisors like Ahithophel. We're going to have things in our life that take us away from you. And Father, that's just not what I want for the people in this room. Lord, I pray that they would lean into you. They would know you. They would read your word and they would ask questions and want to know why you say what you say. And they'd want to do it and understand it, not to earn something, but because they just love what you've already done for them. We pray all this in your name. Amen.